turn to the book of Haggai. And since I know it's a hard book to find because it's probably only two pages in your Bible, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of time to find it because it's the second shortest book in the entire Bible, shorter than Obadiah. And uh, while you guys are turning there, let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Father God, we come before you this morning. Lord, as we continue to look at the minor prophets, you bring us to Haggai this morning, Lord. And I pray that you would speak to us through the words of Haggai. Lord, the same thing rings true that is for all the prophets. Your word then was meaningful, and today it's meaningful, and we need to obey it, Father God. Speak to us and give us the strength and the courage to obey your word, to hear it, listen to it, and to follow it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our series, Majoring in the Minors, we come to the prophet Haggai. To give you a little bit of context about where Haggai wrote his prophecies, it happened in 538 BC, King Cyrus, king of Persia, allowed the exiled Jews to return to Jerusalem after 70 years in captivity. So we're on the other side of the captivity. There was a brief pause between uh, Zephaniah and Haggai. And so Haggai is the post-exilic prophet. And so when the Jews returned from captivity, they did so under the leadership of Ezra, Zerubbabel. Um, there was about 50,000 Jews that left Babylon and went back to Israel. And now to give you an idea, there was more Jews than 50,000 that went into exile, but only 50,000 chose to come out at that time. They left and they went back to Israel and in two years, they started construction on the temple in 536 BC. And then after two years and much opposition, the building effort on the temple stopped. No more work would be done on the temple for the next 14 years. In the 14th year of the halted work is when God sent his prophet Haggai to speak to the people. Now Haggai's name means festive or festival. And what should have been a festive or festival type moment of getting out of exile, going back to the promised land and building the house of the Lord once again. Instead, the people were discouraged and not very festive towards that. Haggai was similar to those to whom he spoke. He also came out of exile. He was a contemporary to the prophet Zechariah. And he ministered about 15 years after the prophet Daniel. Other than that, we know little of his personal life. We don't know who his dad was. There's no listed hometown somewhere in Babylon, I'm guessing. The book of Haggai is the second shortest book. As I said, it only has 38 verses. Now, the other thing is, it's also the shortest book in this. The book of Haggai talks about a very small slice of history. We know this because there are some very specific dates mentioned each message that he gave. And it covers about six months. His words cover about six months. And so how does the shortest, one of the shortest books in the Bible, one of the shortest time periods in the Bible, have any effect or meaning for us today? Well, it comes from the theme of the book. You see, the theme of the book of Haggai comes from the call that Haggai has given by God to tell the people to think carefully about their ways. He says it four times in Haggai 1.5, it says, now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. In Haggai 1.7, the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. 
chapter 2, verse 15, it says, now from this day on, think carefully. And then in Haggai 2, 18, it says, from this day on, think carefully. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. Your translation may say, consider your ways or to consider, but it's thinking carefully. And as we go through the book of Haggai, this is our theme. We're going to be thinking carefully. And so Haggai chapter one, we are going to be thinking carefully about wrong priorities. I have a couple of illustrations to help us understand what wrong priorities may look like. A group of friends went deer hunting and paired off in twos for the day. That night, one of the hunters returned alone, staggering under the weight of an eight-point buck. The rest of the group said, where's Harry? He said, oh, he had a stroke of some kind. He's a couple miles back up the trail. You left Harry laying there and carried the deer back? Well, I figured nobody would steal Harry. I also heard one about a uh, lawyer very successful lawyer. He was parking his BMW. He was parking it on the side of a very busy street. And as he hurriedly opened his door to get out of the car, he didn't check. And right then a car took off his door and he gets out of the car and he's screaming at it. He's like, my car, my car. And as he stood there staring down at his BMW, there was a guy that came up to come and help. And he says, sir, you're so concerned about your car. You didn't even notice that your left arm is gone. And so he looks down and he goes, my Rolex. <laughs> it's easy to see wrong priorities in someone else. It's not quite so easy to see it in our own life. Let's be honest with ourselves, though. We, we all struggle with priorities from time to time, don't we? And every day that we make decisions, we need to understand that those decisions flow out of what we consider to be our most important priorities. And Here's what a priority is. A priority is what you love and value. The concept of love and value affecting our priorities makes sense to most of us. However, we who say we love and value God very often give God what we have left over. What we have left over in time, what we have left over in resources, what we have left over in energy. Sure, We'll worship God as long as nothing else is going on. Sure, we'll give our time and our money to God if we happen to have any left over after we're done with it. And the thing is, is we all, as God's children, we need constant reminders to prioritize God. We need constant reminders to prioritize God because we tend to forget and priorities change as things go on and as things happen, as things come up, priorities will shift and change. But some of those priorities need to remain the main priority. Know this, when God is not a priority, your priorities are wrong. If God is not the main priority, your priorities are wrong. And we're not the first generation to struggle with this. The people living in Jerusalem in 520 BC faced the same and failed in the same problem. And God sent them a message they desperately needed. And we who are alive today, right now in the 21st century, we need that reminder just as much today. And so Haggai chapter one, verse one says, in the second year of King Darius on the first day of the sixth month, 
The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say, The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber and build the house. And I will be pleased with it and glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. Have summoned a drought, I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on people and animals and on all that your hands produce. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. And the Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they began to work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. When we think carefully about our wrong priorities, we need to understand that wrong priorities have to be confronted. We can't excuse them. We can't ignore them. They have to be confronted. That's what we see happening in the first four verses here. It says, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, and it came to Zerubbabel, who was the governor. It came to Joshua, who was the high priest. And the Lord of armies said that, that the people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And in response to what the people were saying, God says this, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, a couple of things to note, just as a background information again, is the dating method of the prophecy of Haggai is a stark reminder that Haggai's ministry is during what is known as the times of the Gentiles. You see, what happened from Zephaniah to Haggai is Israel was conquered as a nation. Their king was removed. No longer are the dates in the Old Testament uh, attributed to a reign of a king in Israel. The times of the Gentiles are the times where Israel will have no king. Even today, right now, while Israel exists, there is no king in Israel. When Christ comes back and sets up the millennial reign, that is when they will have a king again. That is the promise and, the pro that, that is the promise and prophecy of the Lord. 
So the first message of Haggai is given after the exiles had been back in Jerusalem for 18 years and the work of the rebuilding of the temple had been left and laid idle for the last 14 years. Now the work started gloriously. It's recorded in the book of Ezra. The first couple chapters of the book of Ezra, it talks about how the foundation for the temple had been laid and the altar had been rebuilt. In Ezra 3.10, right after they did all that, it says, when the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets and the Levites descended from Asaph holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. And so in the two prophets, there's a pause of about 70 years and another 14 years in which the work is laid idle. They went back into Israel to rebuild the foundation and the altar, and they were supposed to rebuild the temple. But after two years, the work stopped. Why? Because they were overtaken with discouragement. Soon they were derailed by a lack of focus. Perhaps they didn't like working with others as they were building the house, and they just decided to stop. It's in this place and context that the Lord, through Haggai, speaks to confront the people about their priorities. This message, if you know, it goes out not only to their political leader, it goes to the governor of Judah, and it goes to the religious leader, the high priest. And so Haggai starts off with, the Lord of armies says this, modern day equivalent of, thus saith the Lord. He's establishing command and authority of the message as the, being the word of God and not Haggai's soapbox. And I point this out because when it comes to the message being spoken among the governor and among the high priest and among regular people, we tend to think, we, we get confused about which voice becomes priority. Not all voices and not all messages are equal. Haggai's voice was more important than the governor's or the high priest at that time, for he spoke for the Lord. And this is especially important for us to remember today, because today there are many people that have a platform to speak from, but they have no authority within their message. Their message is not as equal as all other messages. And we have to remember that with everyone having a platform to get their voice out, not all voices are equal. There's one voice that has to stand out. That is the voice and the message of the Lord. His Voice and message must be priority. And all who would stand and teach the word of God must do well to remember it's not our job to share opinions, but to proclaim the Lord's word and message without apology. And the Lord's message was to challenge the people's hearts and priorities. And when he says, these people say the time had not yet come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt, Literally, they're saying it is not a suitable time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And understand this, they may not have said that out loud at all. They said it with their actions and their choices. They said it through their inaction, their incompletion of the temple. And they had many reasons why the work to rebuild the temple was hard. The the land was desolate after 70 years of neglect building a temple itself is hard. We find it hard work and we got power tools and stuff today. They had to do it like, not even like hand tools, but like ancient tools. 
They have a lack of resources, maybe a lack of money and manpower. I mean, they were a conquered uh, nation, hostile enemies. The Samaritans were opposing the work. The Samaritans being the first kingdom of Israel that was swallowed up by Assyria, and they went all and they were dispersed. They became a what the Jews later called the half-breed and whatnot. So they, they had that animosity between them. Tough farming, land that's been neglected. I mean, I neglect my yard for a little bit, and now it's overrun with weeds. So I can't imagine the weeds they had, the crop failures, the droughts that were coming in. Or there's always the other thing that comes that discourages us. We always have a, a, a romanticized version of the past. Oh, I was so much better when we were in Babylon. Israel has a history of that. They used to do the same thing. With the, oh, it was better when we were back in Egypt. There's many reasons for the hard work, but they had no reason to stop the work. But in the difficulty of the work, here's what they did. They spiritualized their excuse, and many of us can do the same thing. I know I can be guilty of it at times where it's like, oh, that just seems like so hard. And, and we'll say, the time has not yet come. They're not against the idea of rebuilding. They're against the timing of it because it's just hard. And I can tell you that there's been times in my life in which God has called us to do something as a church to get this building. I remember when we were first talking about getting a building, I said, okay, but the time's not yet. God took away the building we were meeting in. Like, okay, the time is now. There's times where I was talking about uh, being full-time and being able to put 100% towards what's going on in the church. And I said, but not yet. And God took away my job. And I said, okay, I guess it's now. And there's times where we want to spiritualize and say, because it's hard, because it's difficult, the time's not now. If God really wanted me to do this right now, then it would be all easy. There would be no resistance. There'd be nothing coming against me. And he'd just open up all the doors and we just walk through and the birds would sing and it would just be easy. They didn't deny God. They just trivialized him. They weren't against serving God. They'd serve God. Just not yet. Many today live the same way. I will serve you, God, but not yet. It's not time now. Benjamin Franklin says, I never knew a man who was good at making excuses who was good at anything else. See, the excuse of God's timing is laid bare in the next two verses, which describe their wrong priorities. The people said the time has not yet come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. But God says, is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house, my house, is in ruins? So God, through Haggai, speaks a rebuke to the people about their wrong priorities. They built their own houses while neglecting his house. Their priority was me first, and God next, maybe. They didn't just make a roof over their head either. God is not against them having a roof over their head. God's not against us having a roof over our head. The houses are described as paneled houses. This refers to a luxuriously built house that has many finer things in it and spacious layouts. The problem isn't that they lived in paneled houses either. God isn't against us living with some luxuries. It's that they would live in such extravagant comfort and luxury while the temple and the work that God had called them to was in ruins. 
The problem was wrong priorities. The people said, it's not time to do what God wanted. They said, we have no time to do what God wants. But the fact of the matter is, they made it the time to do what they wanted. And so God challenged the people's pretext with this question. You say it's not the right time to rebuild my house. What makes it the right time for you to live in fancy houses? And again, there's nothing wrong with fixing up your house. God is not telling us to go and stop working on our houses and to let it all fall into disarray. That's not at all what he's saying. There's something wrong, however, when we put self-interest above the Lord's will, the Lord's call, the Lord's work. When we pour our time, our money, and our energy into our agenda and we neglect the Lord's agenda, that's the problem. The founder of McDonald's, Ray Kroc, he was asked by a reporter what he believed in. He says, I believe in God, my family, and McDonald's. And then he added, and when I get to the office, I reverse the order. What are the priorities that govern your life? Know this, they're not what you say they are. They're shown by what you choose to do. In Haggai's day, the people didn't seem to have time to do what God wanted but they made the time to do what they wanted. And here's the thing. Our priorities become wrong when we say it's not time for God, but we give plenty of time to ourselves. Some of the excuses that might've been heard in in Haggai's day, we can't get much done at the temple and I'm tired of living in a wreck at home. So it's time to start to remodel our home. God wants me to give attention to things at home. So home comes first. I would fund more construction at the temple, but all my money is tied up with my home renovation. I'm not living extravagantly. Look at all the other houses in my neighborhood. Look at the chariots in their driveway. Someone should go get to work on the temple. And I hope someone steps up to the job. But for me, I need to go finish paneling my living room. The temple hasn't been open for business for like 50 years. What's another little while? doesn't matter, right? The altar is there. We can at least sacrifice. We're getting by. But I hear a lot of the same excuses and, and reasons being made for wrong priorities today. I'll make time for the Lord after the kids are grown, after I retire, after I get married, after I raise a family, after I develop my career, after I retire from my career, after I do this or after I do that, after we reach this goal, after I get to do this goal, after I do this thing, then it will be time. According to Haggai, wrong priorities need to be confronted. We can't just be like, oh, I have a wrong, like we have to confront it. It has to be confronted. The issue is not whether people have nice homes. The issue is not whether they work hard at their jobs. The issue is whether the nice home or the good job detracts from other important and, and priority that we need in life. No time and no money for God's house while one has plenty of time and money for other things are wrong priorities. No time for one's family when one has plenty of time for work are wrong priorities. Being willing to give one's left arm for a Rolex watch is a wrong priority. So what is important to us? What occupies our time and our money? You want to know what your priorities are? Get out your schedule book. 
and get out your budget. Those two things will reveal what your priorities are. What do we think about when we're not thinking about anything else? Who and what need to be prioritized in our lives because wrong priorities will not be blessed. In verse 5, Haggai says, Now the Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. Go up to the hills, bring down lumber and build the house and I will be pleased with it and will be glorified. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and on the hills and on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on people and animals, and on all that your hands produce. So Haggai brings now the correction from God for the people to stop and think carefully about their ways. This phrase, think carefully, that is the theme for Haggai's book, remember? It's the theme for his messages. And it comes from a Hebrew figure of speech, which literally means put your heart on your road. God is asking, Haggai is asking God's people to think carefully. What direction is your life headed in? Do you like the direction it's headed in? Is this the road that you want to continue down? Is it going to reach the destination that you want to reach? Consider what you've been doing. He says, you planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put clothes on, but are not warm. You earn, you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Most of us spend very little time thinking about our lives because we're too busy bouncing from paycheck to paycheck. We're trying to keep our heads above water. But Haggai's asking, we need to consider, why are we up to our necks in water in the first place? We get into those financial troubles and those other things and, and we get overwhelmed with other things because our priorities are out of whack and we start adding on more than, than what we need. Give careful thought to your ways, Haggai says. Think about what you've been doing. You've been planting, you've been eating, you've been earning money, but what do you have to show for it? And isn't that the way it goes? Like maybe you're here, maybe, maybe you're struggling in that, in that same little cycle where it's like, I'm working, we're both working, we're, I'm working two jobs, I'm working all this overtime, I'm doing all these things, why can't I get ahead? We have enough, I'm, I'm eating, why am I not satisfied? Why, why is it not enough? Here's what they were able to get with all their effort. Failed agriculture, he says, you've sown much, but bring in little. A dropped out economy. You eat and drink, but never have enough. You put on clothes, but aren't warm. Inflation spiraling out of sight because of famine and scarcity of goods. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with a hole in it. It reminds me of a bumper sticker I saw. My take-home pay won't take me home. Here's the truth in it. When our priorities are wrong, nothing will satisfy us. Nothing fills the space that is reserved for God in our lives 
except when we put him first. You have to have God first and out of that priority of God first, everything else flows. Their wrong priorities are fruitless. Their selfish and self-centered living had not brought any economic stability. Their abundant planning brought meager harvest and all their efforts availed to nothing because they would not put the Lord first. And here's two things. When you don't put the Lord first, when you neglect God, you never have enough. Never. It's impossible to fail to give God his rightful place in your life without severe consequences. However, the second thing is also true from that. When you put God first, you will have all you need, not all you want. God isn't a genie in a bottle. We don't take out our Bibles and, and rub, rub our Bibles and say in Jesus' name and we get whatever we want. As David said, God is our shepherd and he gives us all we need. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want because when we want, we're saying, God, what you gave me is not good enough. Here's the first step to correcting our wrong priorities, though. Think about what you've been doing. Think about how you've been living. Take some time for that soul-searching reflection. And interestingly, God pointed out it was because of their wrong priorities that God was withholding his blessing. Look at verse 10. It says, so on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. Now, I'm not saying that whenever your life gets difficult, it's a sign that your priorities are wrong, or it's a sign that our priorities are wrong, or that God is withholding his blessing. But I am saying that God made no bones about it to the Jewish people returning to the land, that it was because their priorities were out of whack that he would not bless their lives or their efforts. So we also need to think carefully about what God wants us to do. This is what the Lord Almighty says. He says, think carefully about your ways in verse seven. Go up to the hills and bring down the lumber, build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. And the Lord rebukes them for what he's done, but now he challenges them on what they should do. So hear the message. Maybe the Lord is rebuking you on your priorities, but he's also saying this is what needs to happen. He tells the Israelites, he says, build the house. And he calls them to work for the end purpose. Here is what our priority should be. His pleasure and his glory. Right priorities come when we are more concerned with pleasing him than when pleasing ourselves. Here's the priorities God wants us to have. Obey God's will and live for God's pleasure and glory. Those being our main priorities, everything else flows out of that. Obeying God's will and living for God's pleasure and glory should guide us in our work, it should guide us in our families, it should guide us in our relationships, in our marriages, in our relationships with other people, it should guide us for everything. Those should be our priorities. Everything flows out of that. For Haggai's people, that meant to obey God's will, go get lumber and start building. That was God's will. They knew it, but weren't doing it. What has God revealed to you about his will for your life? Are you doing it? Have you put it off to accomplish other things? Number two, living for God's glory. Build my house so I will be honored. 
Is there anything in your life that God has made clear that he wants you to do? God has given each and every one of us gifts, talents, resources to use for his glory. Are you using them for his glory? Are you using them to build his house? He's not talking about a building. In this day and age, when he talks about his house, now he's talking about a body. Are you using the gifts that he gave you to build his body? Are you holding them back? Our priorities are right when it's our delight to obey God's will and it becomes our passion to live for God's honor. Think carefully about what God is doing to get your attention. Here's what he did in 5th century BC. It says in verse 9, you expected much, but it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? The declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. Continues on, he says, so on on your account, the skies have withheld the dew, the land its crops. I've summoned a drought on the fields and the hills and the grain and the new wine and the fresh oil and whatever your hands produce. God can do and does do some very powerful things to get our attention. Here's a couple of things he does. He can make life hard. God can make life hard. When your priorities get out of whack, God can make life hard. He can send a famine in your life. He can send a famine towards your finances and your resources towards those things. He can send a a, a famine as he did in Haggai's day. He can also send a pink slip. He can send a physical ailment, a a, a diagnosis. He can send a, a, a fallout in your relationships. If you're not having problems in your life, or if you're having problems in your life, is it because your priorities are out of whack? No, I'm not going to suggest that that's the only reason and whatnot, but I am suggesting that God does a lot of things to get our attention. And if he's doing that in your life, you need to listen. In Israel's case, he held back the rain. He gave them poor crops. He he gave them a, a desolate vineyard. Simply put, he made life hard for them. But know this, when God makes life hard, number two, he does it for his glory and our good. Because God disciplines his children. He won't let us coast along and ignore him. Not if we're his. Because it's not in our best interest. No good parent sees his child heading for disaster and stands idly by and just allows it to happen. They take action and so does God. He always does what he does for his honor and our good. And so we not only confront the wrong priorities, we not only correct them, but wrong priorities must be changed. They have to be changed. In verse 12, it says, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people, I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. And the Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. 
we see that not only did they become aware of their, pro- their priorities being wrong, but through Haggai's message, they heard and received the correct priorities. And then we see that they put them into practice because it's not enough to know that they're wrong. It's not enough to know what should be done. You have to do it. And here's two things that true and genuine change involve. It involves our actions and it involves our hearts. You don't change by just merely making vague, fuzzy, emotional commitments. It comes from concrete action, like the Jews did. You see, they obeyed the Lord, all of them did. And it was from the governor to the high priest, to the regular common people, none were exempted. They obeyed and started building. And any time that there's a correction that comes from the Lord, be wary of any leader that stands in front of you and says they're exempted from it. No one is exempt from following the Lord. Putting this into perspective though, the first temple was built by Solomon four and a half centuries earlier. And it was built, it took seven years to finish it. And it was built through taxation and forced labor. Haggai's proposal in essence is rebuild the the temple with what amounted to voluntary labor. But you know what? The people accepted the challenge because a priority change affects our actions. We no longer see it as an impossible problem. We see it as just, this is our priority. This is what we're going to do. We're going to work at it because it involves our hearts. They not only obeyed God, but they obeyed God because they feared God. The people feared the Lord. You see what happened, if you read the, in Ezra, what happened is they had opposition to the work, so they gave up the work because they feared the people. And a lot of times we do that. We, we fear our interactions with other people, and so we stop doing the work that the Lord has called us to. We just give it up, we walk away from it, and it just sits idly by. We only pick up that work again, we only start doing it again when we fear God more than we fear people. Yes, people, are, we're messy, right? We're always gonna have issues with other people. We're never gonna get along 100%, but that doesn't excuse us from following what God has called us to do because he must be our priority. Not whether, along, not whether or not we get along with someone, not whether or not we're, we're on good terms with this, not whether or not we like the, the temple rebuilding uh, fund campaign management or whatever it is that they had in those times. We have to fear the Lord. Where does this change come from? Where does, where does this correction in our heart come from? Well, it comes from the command of the Lord, but sometimes he delivers it through other people. Now, there's a reason why most people didn't like prophets. They came and they spoke a word that nobody wanted to hear. Sometimes the Lord speaks to us through somebody that we're going to dismiss and get mad at, and we're going to take it out on them. But we're called to speak to each other in those times. The Lord's power is, however, what does it. We can make the priority change. We can do it through the Lord's power. You see, it says that the people's spirits, he, it says that the Lord aroused the spirit for the governor, for the high priest, and for all the remnant people. That word roused is awakened, startled, or agitated. You can't just take a bunch of clothes and stick them in a pile of water, a pool of water, put soap on it, and they'll get clean. That's why your washing machine has a cycle called agitate because it's only through the agitation process where the clothes are, there's the uh, friction among the clothes with the soap and everything that gets the stains. It's by the friction in our hearts that God awakes our spirits to start living and working and, and changing for him. 
Here's the cool thing, though. By the power of the Lord, 16 years of slouching was reordered in a matter of 23 days. I don't know where your priorities are at. I don't know where the Lord is speaking to you right now. Maybe it seems like an insurmountable mountain to change those priorities because you've been going at it for so many years. But with the Lord's help, he can right that ship and turn it back around. Because they feared the Lord more than they feared their own discomfort. And because they were assured or encouraged by an assurance of his presence, he righted that ship in 23 days. 23 days after 16 years of laying idle. And the second message from Haggai to the people when he said, you need to go and do this, he says, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I am with you. God, you're speaking to me about this priority and it's really hard and I've already got it set up to do this and I've already got this going on and everything's set up this way. For me to change it is gonna ruin everything. God says, I am with you. Understand that when you have the presence of the Lord with you, you don't need anything else. Take time to think, give careful thought to your ways. There's a Berlin art gallery where there's a painting by a German painter, Adolf Menzel. He lived from 1815 to 1905. This painting is only partially finished. Apparently what happened is Menzel intended to show Frederick the Great speaking with some of his generals. And so how he did it was he started painting the generals. Then he painted the background. And he said, I'm going to leave the king for last. And so he sketched an outline of Frederick and charcoal, and then he died. He died prior to finishing the painting leaving behind a picture full of other things, yet with a partially sketched king. And sadly, that's what happens in a lot of people's lives. They come to the end of life without ever having put King Jesus first into his pop, proper place, center stage. Notice that the people in Haggai's time, they weren't saying that the Lord's house shouldn't be built. They were simply saying because there was difficulty, it wasn't the time to do it. We'll get to it. We'll do it sometime. Maybe we'll do it soon, but not now. The problem is we're not promised tomorrow. All we have is today to live for the Lord. But here's how the enemy attacks us. The enemy makes us think that we have all the time in the world. He says, don't worry about it. You got plenty of years left. Don't worry about it. You still have tomorrow. You can always do it tomorrow. You can do it next month or next year. You could do it after you buy your house. You could do it after you fix your house. You could do it after you get the car you want. You could do it after you fix your car. You could develop your career. You could finish your career. You can have your family. You can raise your family. Then you can engage and serve where the Lord is calling you. But we have to answer two questions. Is the Lord first in my life? Is Jesus Christ your savior? And your Lord? Are you sure? Give careful thought. And the second one is, is the Lord's will more important than our own? And then think about the decisions that you've made just in the last week. The decisions that you've made at work. The decisions you've made at school. The decisions you've made in your family. The decisions you've made. Are you doing what the Lord wants you to do with your time, your money, your energy? If not, now's the time to confess it to the Lord and allow him to reorder our priorities. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided to you. All those things that give us anxiety and worry and all those things that we want to plan for, there's nothing wrong with planning for them. God just says, make me first. Seek me first. There's a story of time management expert who was speaking to a group of business students. He pulled out a large wide mouth jar and he filled it with fist sized rocks. And when he couldn't put any more in, he says, is this jar full? And the class responded, yes. He said, really? And he took out a bucket of gravel and poured it in, shaking it down through the cracks. And then he said, is the jar full? Well, the students were onto him now. They said, no. Good, he replied. He took out a bucket of sand and he dumped it in. Once more, he says, is the jar full? And they said, no. He said, good. And he poured a pitcher of water in until the jar was full to the brim. And then he turned to the class and he says, what's the point of the illustration? And one student jumped up and ventured. He says, no matter how full your schedule is, if you try hard, you can fit more in. He says, no, that's not the point. The point is this, if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in at all. What should your big rocks be? God and his house. Put them first in your life or you'll never get them in. Take steps to change. Don't wait. In three weeks, the Jews reordered their priorities and they finished the temple in three and a half years. Solomon couldn't finish the temple for seven years with forced labor and all the money needed for it. They did it with meager supplies that God gave them and with the roused spirit that God gave them in half the amount of time. But it all started the day they got their priorities back in line. It all started when they took the concrete steps to change, and we have to do the same thing. Tim Sanders, a uh, former chief solutions officer at Yahoo, author of Love is the Killer app, shares the following about establishing priorities. To establish proper priorities, you need to take your life and all the things that you think are important, and you put them into three categories. The three categories are represented by three items, glass, metal, and rubber. The things that are made of rubber, when you drop them, they just bounce back up. And if you drop them more than once, they still bounce back up. Nothing really happens when these things get dropped. The things that are made of metal, when they get dropped, they create a lot of noise, but you can recover from the drop. You miss a meeting at work. You can recover from that. If you forget to balance your checkbook and you lose track of how much you have in your account and the bank notifies you with that wonderful uh, little nasty ground that they send you, it creates a lot of noise in your life, but it, you get through it. You can recover. There are things that are made of glass, and when you drop one of these, it shatters into pieces. It'll never be the same. You can piece it back together, but it will always be missing some pieces it certainly won't look the same. And I doubt that you would ever actually fill it up with water again because it would never hold water the same. You see, it being broken forever affects how it is now used. The thing is, is you are the only person who knows what those things are in your life that you can't afford to drop. But more than likely, those glass things have a lot to do with relationships. Your marriage, your family, your friends. 
How is it that we begin to anticipate God's renewed blessing in our life? We begin by honoring God first in all things. Our relationship with God and our relationship with people who we love, those are precious and they are to be prioritized. I'll leave you with this quote from Augustine. Augustine of Hippo says, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, we thank you for these words from Haggai, Lord, and the message that he spoke so long ago, how it speaks so true and relevant for us today, Father God. And Lord, you've been speaking to each of us about where our priorities are at, and maybe there's some here that don't know Christ, and all they heard is the church needs money, and he's just begging for money, and that's not the case at all, Lord. Um, I pray for those that don't know what right priorities are because they don't have the first and foremost priority of having Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would move them to make that first change of priority in which they take themselves off the seat of their throne and they put Christ on there through his forgiveness. Make him Lord of their life, that he would be the one to direct their life, that he would be the one to set the priorities for them. simply by coming to him and asking for forgiveness that he promises through his shed blood on the cross, that they would be able to walk in the new life that he promises by dying to his life and being raised again in the resurrection, Father God. And Lord, for those of us that do know Christ as our Lord and Savior, help us, Lord, to reprioritize our life, Lord. Sometimes we take Christ off the throne and we put ourselves back on. Father, as it says in Romans, help us to be a living sacrifice, that we would put ourselves back up on the altar, sacrificing ourselves, staying on the altar, no matter the pain, no matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice, that we could put you first in our life. And then, Lord, I pray that we would be comforted by the words and the promise that you spoke through Haggai that still rings true today. This is the Lord's declaration. I am with you. And may we realize that the presence, your presence is all that we need in Jesus' name. Amen.